welcome to I Read a Book Once. My name is Emma, and this is a podcast where I talk about books. Today, I will be talking about What You Wish For by Catherine Center, which is not necessarily a romance novel. It's probably classified as like women's fiction or something like that, where it's like just a step down from a romance novel because there is a central romance plotline, but also it's not like super strong as it would be in a romance novel. I don't know if that makes sense. But basically, it is about an elementary school librarian, Sam, and the new principal of the elementary school, Duncan. They used to know each other back in the day, and Sam was in love with him, but he didn't return her feelings, so she left and came to Galveston, Texas, and started working at this independent elementary school. At the beginning of the book, the previous principal, who was beloved by all and was kind of Sam's father figure, dies, and then Duncan comes in to take over. And the two of them butt heads because he is trying to change everything she sees as good about the school. And it proceeds from there. So that's kind of what this book is about. Today, this is going to be a shorter episode, hopefully, because I have somewhere to be in exactly 31 minutes. And by be, I mean a phone call. So I'm not actually physically going anywhere, but I will have to stop recording so I can pick up my phone. But we'll see if that's on time, if I can get myself to do that short of an episode. I was like, I have the perfect amount of time. And then you never know what's going to happen with me. So we'll see. You can see if I made that time limit or not, because you, I mean, you see what's finished. But me over here, I don't see that. I don't know. I can't see into the future. I am not Raven from that. So Raven. But anyway, so that's kind of what's going on in this book. So some of you may or may not know, but a few months ago... Like, right when I was, like, diving back into the podcast after my hiatus, I did an episode on The Bodyguard by Catherine Center, which is her latest novel, and I absolutely loved it. Adored it. It's my favorite romance novel I've read so far this year. It was fabulous. I cried. I loved it. And so, my birthday was in August, and as a best friend's status on Book of the Month... Um, not sponsored, but I mean, you could sponsor me if you want, but I mean, I don't have any sponsors because no one listens to this, but if you're listening, thank you. Anyway, so in your birthday month, you get a free book. So I decided I would pick one of the Catherine Center, one of her other books that was on book of the month. And I ended up going with this one. There was three other options and on her website. She suggested like reading backwards into her backlist. And this one sounded really interesting to me in the school, um, environment. So I decided to pick it up. I really liked it a lot. I didn't like it as much as The Bodyguard, but that's saying a lot since I told you that was like the pinnacle of the romance novel I've read this year. But I still really enjoyed this one. I definitely want to continue to read Catherine Center's Backlist. I'm a big fan. She's definitely my new favorite author of the year. Just a generally one of my new favorite authors. I don't know. So but before we get into it, I must issue two warnings. The first is a spoiler Warning, if you do not want What You Wish For by Catherine Center to be spoiled, stop here, go read the book. I would recommend it and then come back and listen to this episode. I have a lot of fun ideas and things I want to talk about in the description section. Is that what I call that? The, the discussion section, not the description section. What am I even saying? So I'm looking forward to doing that. And then I also need to issue a trigger warning this is definitely a spoiler. So again, if you don't want spoilers, click off. But um, I'm, I'm just going to issue this here now. So basically, 
Duncan is like obsessed with school safety and security and is like trying to turn their school basically into a prison throughout the book. And prior to that, when Sam knew him before, he was like goofy, fun loving. Like, it's not that he didn't care about the rules, but he instituted, he wore like fun clothes. He instituted hat day. He was like always entertaining the kids, juggling, dancing, all this different stuff. And then when he comes to Galveston to become the principal, he's not like that at all. Very serious, always in a gray three-piece suit, wants to paint the entire school gray, wants to put everybody in uniforms, wants to like add metal detectors, like all this different stuff. So obviously as somebody who grew up in the school system recently, you can kind of guess probably what happened to him, especially with current events. Basically, why did he change? There was a school shooting that he was in. So, or experienced, I guess. So that's the trigger warning. He does end up taking Sam and like kind of describing what happened, but you're not seeing it happen in real time. And then there is not, this is also a big spoiler, but there is not like a school shooting that happens at the end of the book at the elementary school. So I just wanted to provide that warning. It took a long time for me to get through all of that, but I also kind of did a little bit of setup to explain what's going on in the plot. So with that, let's get into the plot summary. So like I said, I've kind of explained the beginning of the book. Sam is a librarian. She has been there for like, I don't know, three or four years. She previously worked at another school as a librarian where she met Duncan he was super cool, super fun. She was in love with him. He never really noticed her. They never really spoke. And then he gets a girlfriend. She worked there for two years. And at the end of the first year, he starts dating somebody from the administrative office and goes away with her for a long weekend and asks Sam to watch his cats. She, um, while she's there, she sees his like journal or like notebook out on the kitchen table and she starts reading it and she's like, this is creepy. So she quits her job and leaves and moves there because she's like, I'm being obsessive. Like, this is weird. I need to, like, get a life, basically. And when she ends up moving to Galveston, she meets, um, what the heck is his name? She meets the, like, Max. She meets Max, who's the principal at the school, you know, before he dies. And he helps her kind of, like, figure out. So, like, prior to this, she was mousy. She just, that this is her own description, not mine. She wore, you know, like drab colors, just like very neutral, navy, gray, black, brown, whatever. And she wasn't very confident. And so Max kind of says, oh, another thing about Sam is that she has seizures. I'm trying to think if she has epilepsy or if she just like has seizures. I can't remember, but that is, she had them a lot growing up. And then they went away when she was in middle school or high school. And then when she moved to Texas, they ended up coming back and she got in a car crash because she had a seizure while she was driving and she no longer drives. Um, and so like after that, she's like very depressed and whatever. And Max kind of institutes this idea and theory of joy and color theory into her life. And just like this idea that like you can bring yourself happiness and the way that Sam does that is through how she dresses. So she starts dressing in polka dots and stripes and florals and hot pink and orange and blue. Just anything that makes her happy, she'll wear it. At one point, like she talks about how she found, found socks that were like clown socks, but they were in the bargain bin and they were fun and cool. So she bought them. So she like is really incorporating this idea of color theory and also like joy and going after joy into her life. And those are two things I'm going to talk about in the discussion section because I have personal connections to them. 
So she's kind of now transformed. And so at the beginning of the book, they're throwing Max like a big like 60th birthday party or something like that. And he ends up dying. He had been on a long flight and he never got up. So he had some sort of blood clot and he dies like in front of everybody. And so his wife Babette is like torn to pieces. She's so upset, so sad. And so she can't really take over as principal, even though everybody thought she would. The board, the head of the board turns out to be Max and Babette's son-in-law. What is his name? Is his name Clark? No. Kent. His name is Kent. Kent Buckley. And he's married to their son, or their son, their daughter, Tina. And he's like, you know, kind of that stereotypical businessman with the trophy wife, Tina, who's always working and doesn't pay any attention to his family and, you know, will end up divorced with like, and doesn't visit his kids and has like a much younger woman. That's the kind of vibes that Kent Buckley is giving off. And he says, okay, I have brought in Duncan Carpenter. I think that's his last name. And uh, Sam is both like, upset because she's like I escaped from my last job to come here to get away from him but also kind of excited because she sees him as similar to Max so she's like joke is on Kent Duncan shows up and he is not like that he literally shows up in his three-piece suit she accidentally runs into him and he shows no recollection of knowing her so she's very upset because they worked together for two years and she was in love with him and maybe she's still in love with him and he doesn't know who she is Anyways, he shows up and is giving a speech and it is all about school security. And at one point he pulls out a water gun that he painted to look like a real gun. And it was really creepy and giving off bad vibes. It was giving off bad vibes and I did not like it and nobody else there liked it. It was not good. And so he basically then we get into the middle of the book and he is starting to implement these different things. He has this dog he's trying to make into a security dog, but he is not a good security dog at all. So it's kind of funny. And then as we get further and further, he starts saying he's going to paint over everything. He's going to um, institute uniforms, gray uniforms, and teachers must also wear gray. And like later on, kind of like he fires their security guard and hires a new one. He wants them all to go through metal detectors, all this different stuff. And the school, all the other teachers are like, this is ridiculous. He's ruining our school, blah, blah, blah. And Sam is having a hard time because she still sees him as this guy from before. So she's trying to talk to him and trying to figure out what happened and this and that. And they sort of start to get to know each other better, but they're still kind of, she's still feeling antagonistic towards him because it's like really weird. And then winter break is coming and she goes into the cafeteria and there was this beautiful butterfly mural all over the walls in the cafeteria and it was painted gray and she is crying she's very upset i'm also tearing up like i don't tears don't fall in my eyes but i am tearing up because this is like the emotional center for me of the story it's very upsetting and he is trying to explain and she's like no like I was defending you to the school and you did this you knew how much this means to me because they'd previously had a conversation about it all this different stuff and she's very upset and she leaves it's winter break so she was supposed to be spending winter break with Babette in like Austin I don't know they were gonna go away for Christmas but then Tina shows up with her son Clay Clay's in the third grade he's a big reader he really cares about the ocean um and is ignored by his father 
big surprise with that Kent Buckley energy. But anyway, so he, they show up and she's like, okay, no, never mind. So she goes for a walk on the beach and she ends up running into Duncan with his sister, brother-in-law, and niece. I don't remember if it was a niece or a nephew, but you know, like their child. And he ends up saying, I have to get this surgery. Um, It's minor, but they're not going to release me by myself. Would you be able to drive me home? She says she can't drive, you know, all the epilepsy stuff. But she will get a, like, car service for them. So then that's just, like, the next week. So she goes and does that, and he is high on the drugs. And so he's confessing all this different stuff, basically saying that he, when he first met her back at the old school, he saw her and thought, oh, shit, because she was so beautiful and knew that she would change his life, which is wild to me because nothing that we're seeing from Sam's point of view from the past indicates that at all. And then she ends up trying to get his shirt off because he dressed in a suit. And that's when she sees the bullet wounds. He was caught in the school shooting. He ended up being shot. And this is when she's starting to understand him better. And he also kisses her, except it feels a little dubious consent because he's super high on drugs and he does not remember the thi- anything about this night the next day. But she takes care of him and then kind of avoids him because it's kind of awkward. She ends up talking with Babette, and then she also has her friend who's, like, obsessed with math, whose name I forgot, Alice, Alice, and they come up with this plan. Babette says, you know what? They begged me to be principal, but I was in no state to do it, and so we're going to force Duncan to do all these fun things every day, and then um, if he doesn't, I'll fire him, and I'll become principal. So then we move into the next section of the novel. So in this next section, basically every day, Babette gives Duncan a task through Sam and they do it together. And on Friday, she basically sends them out on dates because she knows how they are feeling towards each other. At one point, they end up going to an amusement park. Sam gets on the roller coaster, even though she knows she shouldn't because of her seizures. And she's like freaking out. And when they get off, she's so upset, like whatever. And she ends up telling Duncan about it and he ends up telling her about the school shootings and I think they maybe kiss or the school shooting that he was in and it's very emotional and they're like telling each other things and then we get to the end of the school year and Duncan has one last thing because he's really started to change he started to he halted his different school like safety initiatives beyond like the important ones So he stopped painting things. The kids are not in uniforms, like whatever, whatever. And the last thing is he's supposed to dance. Oh, he does not confess about the school shooting right now because basically he ends up dancing. And then later that night, he confesses that when the school shooting happened, they were in the middle of a dance party on hat day. So, you know, that's very triggering. Anyways, but after that, Kent Bunkley shows up and he says, by the way, the school decided to purchase this plot of land to build a new school, and it's literally basically a prison. There are no windows, it's just little tiny slits. All of the doors automatically lock. There's bulletproof glass. Like, it is not cute. It is not cute. And Duncan apparently knew about this. So obviously, Sam's very upset. She runs away. Duncan runs after her. They end up, uh, this is when he talks about the school shooting. And she, like, understands and she feels bad. And then she runs and she jumps off this cliff into the ocean. And then he's very upset because, you know, she could have died. And then they end up kissing and then maybe having sex. I can't remember because it's, like, fade to black. 
And then she does end up, because of the adrenaline and the fear and the risk, she does end up having a seizure. And she's like, you need to leave. I don't want you to see it. Everybody who sees me have seizures, like, leaves me, all this different stuff, you know, childhood trauma. Her father left because of her seizures, blah, blah, blah. Um, so she has the seizure before he can leave. But when she wakes up, he's not there. So she's super upset. Like, I, I knew he would do this, blah, blah, blah. Turns out the reason he left is because Clay, Kent Buckley, and Tina Buckley's son went missing. Kent was supposed to pick him up after school to go to this, like, museum because it was his birthday, and he never showed up. And so when he came home from work and drinks, his wife's like, why, why are you here? You were supposed to be on this, like, overnight thing with our son. So everybody's got to try and find him. So... Sam and Alice go and they're walking down the beach and they end up finding him on the beach and he is there with a beached whale. It's a pygmy sperm whale and he's trying to cut the net so the whale can get back out there before the tide goes away and it dies. So then everybody shows up and they're humming Silent Night and they're trying to free the whale and then Kent Buckley shows up and he's screaming and he's shown his true colors that he is a bad man and blah, 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 blah. They free the whale. Kent Buckley punches Duncan. He is like... Tina asks for a divorce and he leaves and Duncan confesses his love or whatever and they are not going to change the school and um, Babette actually never had the authority to remove him but Kent ends up getting removed from the board. Babette is now like the board president and Sam and Duncan live happily ever after and they make some um, compromises about school security while also still staying true to their like fun selves I guess I don't know so that's the book I also forgot to mention that the paint over the butterfly mural was um removable which I didn't know existed it was like washable paint on the walls and they did end up like taking the paint down sometime in the middle of the book so that was what happened I don't know if that was long or not because I talked for a lot beforehand but anyways let's get into the discussion section and let's talk first about this idea of school safety in the school being a prison, um, just because it is a top of mind from the end of it. So the first thing I want to say is that Duncan was right in that their school was lax on security. The security guard was asleep. Not good. He was able to just walk into the school building and nobody stopped him. That's not safe. That is not safe. We don't like that. When I was in like school K through 12, you know, when you walked in, you had to sign in, sign in at the front office, you know, show ID, stuff like that. All of the doors were locked except for the door by the front office. So you couldn't just come in anywhere, which, you know, us students knew because sometimes kids would try to leave during lunch, but you would have to get a friend to let you back in. This was in high school um, because the doors, there were like a lot of exit doors, right? But you could only get through them. You couldn't come in them unless you were a teacher and you had a key. So really, you know, schools should have that. You should have to check in, things like that. So some of the stuff Duncan wanted to do, I think is totally appropriate. Doors should lock. People should have to sign in. Security guards should be awake if they're going to be there. He definitely, though, was trying to take it too far to like build this entire new school where there are not windows that is literally making the school into a prison. And so when I was in high school, people joked that my high school like looked like a prison. That was a big joke that went around. Did it look like a prison? I don't know. But it definitely was not as prison-like as this. We had windows. 
Like we could go outside, things like that. Duncan also like takes away field trips at one point. And I mean, our walls were like typically like, you know, like they were pretty generically like white for the most part, you know, brick, like, you know what I'm talking about, like a generic high school, middle school, elementary school. But we were not, things were not all one gray color. We were not all wearing gray uniforms. I went to public school, so that's something I'll also be talking about later on. So he's definitely trying to take it too far. The thing with like metal detectors is what I've heard is really only like schools in bad areas in like the inner city tend to have those. So do I think that metal detectors are a good or bad thing when it comes to school? I don't know. It definitely changes the vibe of school though, I would say. And so especially as we are in this era of like mass shootings and so many school shootings, I feel like you can barely turn on the news without hearing about another one, which is not entirely true, but sort of true. School safety is very important. So what frustrated me about this book is that the teachers don't understand that and that they are opposed to every single thing that Duncan is trying to implement. Literally painting over everything in the school and stopping field trips, that's very intense. Ripping down the school and building a new one that has no windows, that's also very intense. Implementing some basic security measures so that bad things do not happen to students, that feels good. That feels like something we should be doing. Now, obviously, the real, like, making schools safer is kind of putting a band-aid over a wound versus, like, fixing the root cause, or band-aid over a, a bullet hole, excuse me for being very crass with that, but, like, the idea of, like, basically gun control, we need that so we can stop, you know, mass shootings from happening, stop putting these weapons of destruction into the hands of people who should not be having these weapons. So that's really, I think, the root cause of the issue is that we need stricter gun control. And in doing that, we will see a huge drop in mass shootings and school shootings, especially students will feel safe to go to school. I was never in a school shooting, just putting that out there, thank God. But I do remember a time in high school where we were on a lockdown because somebody had like threatened to bring a gun to school and somebody had reported them. Basically, there was no gun. Everything was fine. Nothing bad happened. But I like grew up in a time where in middle school, every single year we had a school assembly on Columbine and bullying. And Columbine was this big, one of the biggest at the time mass shoot, like school shootings. And it was like, I don't remember if it was one or two kids who were bullied really badly and then they they brought guns to school and shot a bunch of people and it was like horrific they made us watch videos and like hear people give recountings and they were like do not be a bully because then this stuff happens but we also know from sandy hook and from other school shootings that sometimes just deranged people come in and do this sort of stuff so it's a very serious issue this is also like kind of going it wasn't necessarily to me a plot twist to me It was very obvious right from the get-go of Duncan having such a big personality swap that he was obviously involved in some sort of school safety issue. And to me, the obvious answer there is a school shooting. So I was not surprised at all when it was revealed that that is like what changed things for him. I think it's kind of silly that none of 
the teachers, I mean, or at least Sam didn't think that because she saw the change. The other teachers didn't know him beforehand. But to me, that was kind of the obvious sort of answer of why he was the way that he was. And I don't blame Duncan in a lot of ways because if I was involved in something like that, I think it's very hard to feel safe again afterwards. And also you don't want your children to go through that. So I understand why he wants to make the school safer. But I do not think that the way to do that is to paint over the walls and to make everybody wear a uniform. And that brings us to the next point of the theory of joy and clothing and uniforms. We're going to talk about clothing and uniforms first and then move into the theory of joy. So Duncan wants everybody to wear uniforms. And so you have kind of this like undercurrent of the uniform discussion going on, but it's framed around basically the clothing that Sam and Duncan are wearing. And Sam talks about how like she was so unhappy and the whole thing with Max kind of explaining like, wear what you want. And so she talks about how um, she, uh, I wonder if I could find it the paragraph where she talks about it but she talks about like she takes this joy she doesn't just wait for joy to find her she goes and takes it I'm gonna look for it really quick okay I found it so basically Duncan is asking about like this idea of why she's always so happy so she has just talked about how she has the seizures and blah 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 and she's like don't use that against oh about epilepsy I was right like and she's like, don't use it against me. And he says, I wouldn't. And then he's talking about like, okay, you've been through some hard things. And then he says, what I mean is you seem like a person life has been kind to. And he talks about, I don't know, you're wearing all these crazy polka dots and stripes and pom-poms. You're just so weirdly happy. And she says, do you think I'm happy because I don't know any better? And he says, I don't know. And then she says, dude, I'm not happy because it comes easily to me. I bite and scratch and claw my way toward happiness every day. It's a choice, a choice to value the good things that matter, a choice to rise above everything that can pull, could pull you down, a choice to look Mizzy right in the eye and then give it the finger. And he says, so it's a hostile kind of joy. He was mocking me. Sometimes I said defiantly, is that a real thing though? It's a deliberate kind of joy. It's a conscious kind of joy. It's joy on purpose. And then he basically isn't sold on it. And she says, I'm telling you, I know all about darkness. That's why I'm so hell bent every damn day on looking for the light. So that's kind of the theory of joy, of the ferocious kind of joy, deliberate joy, joy on purpose. And that ties into clothing. And this really, now I'm going to get a little bit personal before I talk more about joy, is that this really kind of ties into my own personal ideas on clothing and self-expression. This might get me in trouble because it got me in trouble in college. So basically, I mentioned earlier, I went to public school, K through 12. And then in college, I ended up going to a private Catholic school. Now, not every, I would say only maybe half the people at the school were Catholic, which is still quite a high percentage, but like a lot of people weren't. However, there was a high percentage of students there who had gone to Catholic school, either just in high school or for their whole lives, basically. I never had to wear a uniform to school. I was always able to wear whatever I want. So I remember having a lot of discussions about uniforms in freshman and sophomore year because I saw uniforms as very restrictive of self-expression, whereas my friends who went to private school said, uniforms make life very easy. I never had to think about what I wore. Everybody looked the same. So there's not like, I don't know, um, 
competition in that way. They talked about how they would express themselves through their socks or their pencil cases. And I just like didn't buy that argument because for me, clothing is very indicative of who I am as a person and my self-expression. I express who I am through my clothing. I'm drawn to different things because of how they make me feel. And I think that clothing is very important in kind of expressing who you are and how you feel about yourself in the world. And like when you wear something that makes you happy, like that, like when you wear something you like, people can tell. Like, I feel like you get complimented on your favorite pieces a lot more than pieces you feel uncomfortable wearing because it clothing can give you confidence. Now, I've also talked previously about how there was a large stretch of time where I wanted to be a fashion designer, but then I never learned how to sew. So obviously I did not become a fashion designer. So I've always been drawn to clothes. But as somebody who for a long time in my life felt very invisible, that nobody could see me, nobody cared about me. I really tried to combat that with what I wore. I wore colored pants for a full year longer than colored pants were in. I had bright neon yellow green colored pants that I would wear to school and out and about. I really, I never wanted to have, like I did not have a lot of gray and black in my closet. I had a bright purple coat. I would wear some crazy floral stuff. Like I really was going all out, not not all out, but like I was wearing what I liked and I still try to do that. And I'm also trying to, another thing is like in the office, they, they always tell you to wear neutral colors. And I was like, I'm gonna wear bright red. I have diamond pants. I have orange, coral purple, like whatever. Like I want to be happy. I want to feel confident in my clothing and wearing white, black, navy, and gray all the time is not going to do it for me. So for me, I feel very strongly that clothing is something that can bring you joy, something that helps with self-expression. It also makes me think of the Legally Blondes movie where there's the two British twins from The Sweet Life of Zack and Cody and they're supposed to be like Elle Woods's like cousins or something like that. And they start going, they move to America and start going to a private school where they have to wear uniforms and they hate it because they feel like they can't express themselves and they're ugly. And so basically I am anti-uniform and pro self-expression of your clothing. And then that brings me to the idea of the theory of joy. So basically I have an aunt and for as long as I can remember, I don't want to say she's been obsessed with joy, but... Okay, if you were wondering, I did not finish by the time that I needed to. I just got my phone call and I had to tell my friend, oh, I'll call you back in five minutes. I'm so sorry. So uh, yeah, because I paused because my throat got all phlegmy and I need to drink some water, you know. Um, That's a little bit TMI. But anyways, getting back to the theory of joy. I have this aunt for as long as I can remember. The buzzword for her is joy. Every time my mom finds something out and about, this is her sister, she that says joy on it, like she'll buy it. She's like, I gotta get this for my sister. So I swear she must get a present with the word joy for her birthday and Christmas almost every single year for my family. But she very much believes in the power of joy, which is something that like I understood. But when I read this book, I understand it. I understood it a lot better because what this book is talking about is really what my aunt has been talking about in the power of joy. And like, I see, no, I don't really think Sam and my aunt have a lot of similarities, although I know my aunt as an aunt, not as like a 
fully rounded person. I don't know. Sometimes she listens to this, so I'll feel really weird about that. But like, anyways, it made me understand her theory of joy a lot better reading about how Sam is talking about it and that joy is deliberate. It is something that we choose and that you fight for. And for me and for Sam, part of that is through her clothing. When you feel hot, what, what you, when what you wear makes you feel happy, you feel happier in general. I mean, not, now it's not enough to combat depression. Now, this is me just like jumping, but like it's not enough to combat depression just by like deciding to wear happy clothes and be like, I believe in joy. But when you believe in joy and you believe in the power of joy, you can take steps towards achieving that, whether they be small things like eating an ice cream or bigger things like, I, I don't know, but just like bigger things, things that make you happy. Those things are important and you must seize joy and you must make the most of it. Now, since I'm running behind and my friend is waiting to talk to me, I want to talk about one last thing very quick. And that is, where was the scene where they discussed the past? Because basically twice, once when he's on drugs and once when he's not on drugs, Duncan talks about how he thought Sam was beautiful when he first met her at the previous school and knew immediately that she was going to change his life. And Sam was obsessed and in love with him back in the day. And the two of them, like, did not think the other liked them at all. And Duncan thought Sam had, like, a bunch of cats, which is why he asked her to cat sit. She didn't have any cats. So I don't know how he could feel that way and not know anything about her. So I really, there was no scene where the two of them talk about, like, Duncan mentions that twice. And I think Sam might mention, like, I was obsessed with you, basically. Like, I was in love with you. I don't really know. Back in the day. And so my question is, why was there not a scene where the two of them discussed that? I know the reason there was not a scene is because the way she, like, created the plot, like, where that would go is during the whale saving scene, which, by the way, they do save the, save the whale. I don't know if I mentioned that or not earlier. But because of the fact that they were, like, talking about the whale and Tina and Kent getting divorced and all this different stuff, there's not really a place for them to have that discussion, but to me, that felt very important because the two of them were on opposite wavelengths, even though they felt the same, they had no idea. And the way Sam talks about Duncan and the relationship she had with him at the previous school, you would have no idea. So to me, I want to know why Duncan felt that way and why he had no idea Sam felt that way. Like, I need to know from his perspective what was going on so I can kind of create the full picture. So that was the one scene I was really missing in this book. So like I said, I enjoyed this one a lot. It definitely felt like less of a romance than The Bodyguard, but I was okay with that. I enjoyed the storyline and the characters and all of that different stuff. So I'm not mad about it, but I definitely like, while I would call The Bodyguard a romance, I'll buy it a clean romance, I would not necessarily categorize what you wish for as a romance in the same way because it was kind of romance light, like L-I-T-E versus like a, like, that was almost like, it was like the main subplot, if that makes any sense. I don't know. So with that, I went way over in my time. So I need to wrap it up. So please, please, please like, rate, and review my podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on your other um, podcast listening apps. If you're able to, it will help other people find my podcast and I would really appreciate it. Also, follow me on Instagram at I read a book once blog. While you're there, go ahead and give me a DM to let me know about this book, this episode, or this podcast, and we can chat about that. If you don't like Instagram, you can email me at I read a book once blog at gmail.com, and we can chat about those same things there as well. 
Next week, I will be talking about Kingdom of the Curse by Carrie Maniscalco. I was supposed to read that this past week, but I read What You Wish For instead because I'm very nervous to read it because the way the first book ended set up a plot trope that I don't like, even though I know by the time I finish the series, it's going to turn out in a way that I'm happy with. I just think book two is going to be a little bit miserable because I'm going to be unhappy with the framing device that's being used, uh, me being vague, but we'll find out. I'm reading that next. Start that either tonight or tomorrow. So with that, my name is Emma. This was I Read a Book Once, and I'll catch you guys next time.